0: Welcome to the Lawful Assembly podcast, a show about the intersection of law, religion, and activism. It is hosted by lawyer and activist, Reverend Craig Moosen. It's produced by the Division of Mission and Ministry at DePaul University. Craig, here we are again. Uh, It feels like there's a never-ending stream of proposals coming from the federal government about immigration. Now it seems there's a change to asylum and withholding of deportation procedures.
1: That's correct, Brian. We have new proposed regulations that are changing the system for applying for asylum. Some of our previous podcasts have dealt with restrictions that have, in effect, tried to keep people from applying for asylum. What I'd like to talk about today involves the application process itself, someone who has initially made a claim for asylum. There are several proposed regulations. Comments are due by Friday, October 23rd, but I want to focus on a couple of issues because this is an attack first on the asylum seekers themselves, those seeking safe haven in this country, but it's also attack on attorneys and the rule of law. Attorneys who have often volunteered to represent asylum applicants, attorneys who have given much of their time to help corroborate claims and present the applications. Let me explain. Recall that we have an asylum system because of many of the tragedies coming out of World War II that the nation states had no process for people fleeing persecution to make a claim that they were indeed bona fide refugees. We developed a system, the United States enacted the Refugee Act of 1980, and in that we promised to offer a system to discern the eligibility of asylum applicants. Now, we've seen attacks for the last four years, restricting the border, sending people back into Mexico to wait for their asylum application. These new proposed procedures for asylum and withholding of deportation get right to the heart of the process. There are several proposals. I'd like to comment on two today. The first creates a 15-day filing period from which an applicant who makes a claim for asylum or withholding must file a complete application within 15 days. After noting that the applicant has already made the claim for asylum, withholding, or perhaps protection for remedies under the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, and because those are the sole issues to be resolved in the proceeding, the proposal says, quote, Thus, there is no reason not to expect the alien to be prepared to state his or her claim as quickly as possible, unquote. The proposal concludes, because there is no good reason, the applicant should file a complete application in 15 days. That is a blatantly wrong statement.
0: Now, that's a pretty forceful language there, Craig. What do you mean when you say that? Can you explain that to us?
1: There's a difference between making a claim and supporting the claim. Imagine with me an asylum seeker who has had a terrible experience in their homeland that has forced them to flee, perhaps has had a harrowing journey over sea or through desert, has suffered persecution or has a well-founded fear of persecution. They get to a place at the United States to ask for asylum and they're placed in detention. They may have no way of knowing how to reach out for an attorney. And they go before a judge and say, I've been persecuted. And the judge says, file your application in 15 days. You have limited access to telephones in detention. You might have loved ones in the United States who can find an attorney for you. But now you're ticking away the clock that the attorney has to be found, has to be able to reach you in detention, has to have time to interview you and finish an application. Or imagine even more difficult trying to fill out that application by yourself while in detention. Brian, the asylum application is 10 pages long and includes hundreds of questions. There are 14 pages of instructions, much like the small print one finds in their tax forms. Imagine trying to read that if English isn't your first language, let alone if you have any English skill. These new proposals suggest not only do you have to do it in 15 days, every question has to be answered. Without an attorney's help, you might not know what the question is even asking. If you leave something out, the proposals suggest that the immigration judge is required to return it. Let me again read this language. For purpose of filing with an immigration court, an asylum application is incomplete, If it does not include a response to each of the required questions contained in the form, is unsigned, is unaccompanied by the required materials specified in paragraph A of this section, is not completed and submitted in accordance with the form instructions, or is unaccompanied by any required fee receipt, unquote. That's a mouthful. Imagine sitting in a detention center and you have limited English skills, and then imagine trying to fill out a 10-page application.
0: If they start it, will that stop the 15 days if they start it?
1: No. That's the point. Once they make the claim that they want asylum, they have the 15 days to finish it.
0: So they're essentially putting a time limit on on the fact that someone is coming here looking for help, looking, looking for uh, a safe haven, and they're putting a 15-day time limit with a very difficult system.
1: Exactly. And now they're also asking for a fee. Oh. Now, that gets me to my, my second point about attorneys. We celebrate one of the great success stories of attorneys in the United States who have stood up and volunteered to work for refugees. We have hundreds of attorneys, of pro bono attorneys in Chicago who work through the National Immigrant Justice Center who work with other community-based organizations and have developed their skills to represent asylum seekers. Our DePaul College of Law, students take immigration law, they take asylum law, and we have a asylum and immigration legal clinic where law students take a year-long clinic course to meet applicants, interview them, prepare these applications, interview corroborating witnesses, search out country condition reports, to corroborate the claim, interview expert witnesses, interview therapists, doctors. They might communicate with family in the native country and take several months to put all that information together and prepare a hundred page or so asylum application. Many of these students go out to become pro bono attorneys or work in the private bar, which also does tremendously great work. All of that work can't be done in 15 days. That's why I say it's an attack on the legal system of fair process, and it's an attack on those many attorneys who've dedicated thousands of hours of volunteer time to make the system work. It's very clear from the documented evidence that if you have an attorney in an asylum proceeding, your chances of prevailing are greater than 50%. And most of the studies show if you don't have an attorney already, without these new proposed regs, it's 10 to 16% possible success rate. I might add that our DePaul law students have had a tremendous success rate in representing applicants. And the reality is there is a system of appeals. So if one doesn't prevail at the first level, our pro bono attorneys, our law students can take it to the next level. And we often make the law better by challenging these types of restrictions. As you can see, this 15-day rule will force a lot of people to abandon asylum claims or turn in incomplete applications. And then even if they get noticed that they can try to f- complete it,
0: they don't know where to turn in that short time frame to build a proper record. If people weren't understanding this, what's a good metaphor you could use um, that's sort of uh, reflective of maybe something that's in the legal system currently? Interestingly, Brian, I was talking to a DePaul
1: law student, Maya Flores, and I asked her the same question, and, and she responded, uh, think about this. What Think about a 16-year-old that uh, maybe just came to this country and had never driven a car and was told, oh, now that you're here, uh, you've just turned the appropriate age, uh, you can apply for a driver's license. And you have 15 days to prepare to take a test on driving in the United States with all its questions about driving laws. You probably don't have access to your computer. By the way, if you make one minor mistake, perhaps get a birth date wrong or don't answer one of the questions because you don't know an answer, you're banned forever applying for that license again. If you cannot pay for the license, you can't even apply. And if you file the application and don't pay the fee, you're going to be banned from applying a year from now if you have the money to apply for that license. I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the other parts of the proposed regulations, it lets the immigration judge, who is supposedly the neutral deciding the case, can introduce evidence if she or he wants to add to the record. So here, the driving exam proctor can pull personal information off your Facebook or Instagram page, and they could fail you if they see something they don't agree with. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but you can see where this is going. If I don't have an attorney and the immigration judge puts in a document, how do I cross-examine that? How do I even know what the immigration judge is doing? And, and then how do I know what the immigration judge is going to rely on? Then getting back to the metaphor, I'm banned for driving for life.
0: So if if someone was going to try to respond to this, what could they do?
1: Brian, both the National Immigrant Justice Center and the American Immigration Lawyers Association have provided templates that one could file comments before 1159 East Coast time next Friday, October 23rd. We'll put the links in our show notes for this podcast. The templates have basic arguments, but they invite you to add your comments, uh, your experiences. Perhaps you've worked with refugees and you can Detail how difficult it might be to fill out an asylum application. Perhaps you've worked with translators. You know the difficulties of translating a foreign language into the American legal system. Perhaps your community group, your church, your synagogue, your mosque has worked with refugees, immigrants. Um, Add those personal items that suggest how difficult this is going to be. And you might, if you have time, look back some of our earlier podcasts this summer to to get a picture of the broad way that the entire system is being dismantled. And you could add that in terms of the manner in which this current administration is betraying the principles and promises we made in protecting refugees through the Refugee Act of 1980. You might also add, contact your congressional representatives and Ask them why this dismantling of the system is happening right now.
0: Craig, I don't wanna sound like I'm a downer here. I recognize the power of our voices. I recognize the power of our stories. I recognize the power of solidarity. But is this, I mean, in some ways this feels kind of futile.
1: Brian, i like to tell a story. Before I came to DePaul, I directed the Midwest Immigrant Rights Center, which was the organization that has since developed into the National Immigrant Justice Center. In the mid-1980s, as we were trying to recruit pro bono attorneys, we lost virtually every Salvadoran and Guatemalan asylum case that we presented to the courts. It was very discouraging, but we kept at it. Uh, We also, because we had pro bono attorneys, appealed every case we lost. And we started to get some victories. We started to bring in the expert witnesses, the information that these processes are trying to get rid of, and we started to prevail. We were also part of a national effort to file a class action suit against the federal government, claiming what we believe to be discrimination in the processing of asylum applications. In 1990, the first Bush administration settled that case and reopened every denied Salvadoran and Guatemalan asylum case from 1980 to 1990. Part of that was due to the efforts of lawyers working with religious groups. The name plaintiff was the American Baptist Church, but there are also many other religious organizations that were part of that effort to protect refugees. That has given me hope that if we keep at this, we're going to find a way. But also that if you really become enraged at this evisceration of a protection system that we've been such a major player in on the world stage, that we're gonna to have to keep finding ways to rebuild that system. And by filing comments, one educates oneself on some of these intricacies of the process that will then enable us, when we have a chance, to build a better system. Therefore, I agree, it's discouraging. I'd much rather be doing podcasts on the success stories of the refugees who are making our communities better but I think we have to be
0: vigilant now because we're in a very dangerous time. Craig, thanks so much for letting people know about this. We're gonna post links, like you said earlier, on the show notes so people can file uh, their comments using the templates provided. Uh, Thanks again, Craig. Thank you, Brian. Stay well. Thank you for listening. This podcast is not intended as legal advice. If you'd like to learn more or check out the reference materials, please look at the show notes at blogs.depaul.edu slash DMM.